Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It's your local community radio station that you are tuned into. My name is Andy and I'll be hanging out with you for the next hour. On today's show we're going to be talking about the correctional facilities in Australia. I have a couple of interviews. One is with Damien Linane, who is the editor of the Paper Chained magazine uh, full of prison writings that get sent out for free to uh, people in prison in Australia and as well you can read it too and I also speak to Jenny Lee Carr who is Indigenous mental health nurse has worked in prisons and she's also part of the Indigenous Aboriginal Party of Australia we talked to her about uh, Queensland's youth justice reforms they call it a reform which implies that it's making things better but it's not all that clear that it is uh, the number of kids who are denied bail because of Queensland laws that go against normal principles of justice, saying that the presumption should be against bail for young offenders if the court thinks they are at risk of reoffending or likely to reoffend. Of course, normally in um, our justice system, you get locked up for a crime if you did it, not if they think you're going to do it. Uh, and a number of Young kids who have been held on remand end up uh, pleading guilty, taking plea bargains to get out of remand for things that they never would have gone to prison for in the first place. So they end up doing prison sentences even though the judge in the end just gives them time to serve because they've already done it or even gives them a sentence that's less than a a prison sentence. It's a very significant issue. And a lot of these kids, they're, they're not even in prisons where or juvenile justice centres where there are better um, facilities at least set up for young people who are locked up. A lot of them are just kept in the watch house, which I can tell you is very boring. And I've never spent that much time in there, only a couple of days at a time maximum. Um, (laughs) I would hate to do more. It is not a pleasant place to be and certainly not good for your psychological well-being, which potentially is already not in the best space if you are in there. So we'll be talking with both of them. I guess there's a lot of uh, small and slow reforms that we can do to make the system a bit better, but they're not generally very popular politically, and it's so easy for them to get swiped away in one 
uh, outraged media report on some crime wave somewhere and a politician feels a need to respond to uh, keep their voter base happy. Or law and order is always a good one. And so the tiny incremental reforms that people have been working on just get brushed aside. But that's what we're going to be talking about today. I guess some of the small things that can make life a bit better and make the prison system a bit better. Things like getting uh, healthcare, mental health plans and things like that for people inside as well as art and creative expression and human contact and uh, contact with the culture as well. Um, of course, prisons have also been in the news a bit this week, a lot more than usual, um, with the news of the release of Kathleen Folbig. A lot else has been written about it, um, and so I'm not going to add anything. Um, and in some ways, it fits in with the obsession with true crime that our society has, these kind of idea of crime and prisons in this sort of voyeuristic spectacular sense that we're all like fascinated by but i i'm not sure that at all helps um reform our justice system or to stop crime from happening like i said before it's a lot of hard work and slow reforms and um and a lot of uh funding given to places that it's not very popular for funding to go to i.e you know people that have committed crimes and harmed people directing government funding their way um, to sort of fix these things. But anyway, a project by the Community Restorative Centre, although it was set up as a very grassroots DIY uh, project by a couple of Brisbane anarchists actually back a few years back, um, shout out to them if they are listening, is the Paper Chained Journal of Prison Writings for Prisoners by Prisoners. And I interviewed Damien Lenane, who is currently the editor. Let's have a listen. My name's Damien. I'm doing a PhD um, focusing on mental health in prison through the University of Newcastle. And the other main thing that occupies my time, of course, is um, I'm the editor of Paper Chain, which is an art and writing magazine for people in prison. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit more about the Paper Chain Journal? Yeah, so I mean, I sh- guess I should tell you about how, how it all started. Um, I was in prison myself um, for 10 months, uh, starting at the end of 2015. And um, there was no education or therapy in prison. And there was nothing, um, the prison gave us nothing constructive to do. And uh, so because I had nothing constructive to do, I decided to teach myself uh, art. And I also, um, I wrote um, some short stories on a novel by hand. But um, there was no a place for me to send any of the stuff I was making because um yeah there was there was no prison magazine and, and not only was there no prison magazine uh, it had been so long that nobody in prison could remember there ever being one there has been um several over the years but uh it had been a long time and so um I was like you know this this would really give uh prisoners a, a really uh, gr- a great you know creative outlet and uh would just you know really improve like your know, mental health and self-esteem just giving them something constructive like that so i made the decision to try and start one up after i got out and um this is a good thing but somebody else beat me to it by a couple of months and so i i reached out to her and i said well look, look this is great because uh, i have a life to rebuild um can i i wanted to do something like this can i help you with it and um for the next like four and a half, five years, um, she produced uh, the magazine annually and I was uh, the only person kind of like, you know, about volunteering uh, consistently on that. And then uh, beginning of 2021, uh, she reached out and she said uh, she couldn't do it anymore and asked if there was any chance I'd like to take it over. And I said I would. So, yeah, who are the writers and who's the audience? 
Yeah, so um, it's actually funny. A few weeks ago, um, I had somebody um on the outside um uh come up to me and say, "Oh, look, Damien, I read I read the magazine because it's freely available on the website. Anyone can read it." And she's like, "She's like, look, it's really great, but I, I just found it was um." Uh, like a little too depressing like the content i think you need to break it up more with uh, like you know uh, spread out the de- <laughs> the uh the uh the sad stories in between with uh um other stuff and i said oh look you know that's uh, that's that's good feedback in general but i mean our target audience is people in prison and you know uh that stuff if anything is going to make people feel more heard because you know we our our main contributors are people in custody and they write about things about the, uh that affect them so there's a lot of um uh stories about you know being depressed being isolated miss, missing your family have not having a lot of hope for the future and i mean as a person who's struggled with mental health in the past as well uh, i know that it's it's much better to like express those feelings some way constructively rather than just bottle them up so i um i the the target audience is is people in prison uh most of our contributors are people in prison we do accept uh things from uh former prisoners as well of course um i i have a regular column um in the magazine now from a uh, former prisoner in victoria uh, and um we're open to uh yeah families of prisoners and people supportive of prison reform as well but it's uh i'd say it's like you know 80 percent people in prison 20 percent former prisoners and we rarely get anything from anybody else yeah you uh, mentioned that you were in prison yourself and in the last issue of paper chain you write in quite a lot of detail about your own history i guess does that experience of spending time on the inside yourself inform how you make paper chain and decisions that you make around the uh, magazine and what should be in it um yeah definitely well i mean prison uh, like uh, completely changed my life but actually um unlike most people in a good way so like everything i'm doing now you know um my phd is focusing on making mental health treatment available in prison because that there was none when i was there and um and you know i got involved with a magazine because there wasn't one of those either and i knew that ironically that would help people in the absence of mental health treatment um i do uh it is tricky sometimes uh finding a fine line because um we're approved by corrective services in new south wales so um in in new south wales prisons uh during the pandemic they brought out um tablets for people so they could have visit video visits because um uh regular visits got shut down and uh but the tablets are still in there and um our because we're officially approved by corrective services uh we go out digitally on the tablets which means like you know um yeah about ten thousand people in new south wales are able to you know, access the magazine uh but we it, it is a very fine line to tread um trying to let uh prisoners express themselves how i'd like them to and to to uh, talk about issues that really affect them and still uh, manage to get approval from the prison system so i mean i do always try to push the boundaries a little bit like um every like it makes me happy when i get things that are like you know have have a little bit of criticism because i mean um uh one of the reasons uh conditions n- never really improve in prison is because it's because it's you know out of sight out of mind no, nobody talks about it nobody's aware these issues are in there so um I do uh, like to uh, have uh, some um, critical uh, criticism uh, because, I mean, that's also healthy for the prisoners to get that out in a yeah, more constructive uh, medium. Um, you know, something I've witnessed myself in custody is that, you know, people are very frustrated and so they'll they'll take out their frustration at the prison officer at the counter and, I mean, they can't do anything about the, you know, the, the, the prison policy even if they wanted to, which they probably don't anyway. But um, uh, something I do try to do very much in the magazine as well, though, is... Um, I try to share positive stories of um, 
people who have uh you know made the most of their time after that they've they've gotten out and um and uh the reason i do that is because uh, one of the most influential books i read when i was in custody was the autobiography of malcolm x and the reason that was so inspiring to me was because he was someone who had been in prison for a long time and had gotten out and um then you know ch- changed the world essentially and um i found that very inspiring so um I do, um, now that I have funding to make the magazine, after I took it over, I applied for funding because it just kept getting bigger and bigger and I, and it was, um, uh, too expensive to produce. But um, ever since I've gotten funding, I'm now able to create content. And, um, so something I do is, um, I do interviews with other people, um, who have gotten out and talking about what they've ma- managed to do with their, uh, their lives. Um, a lot, a lot, there's a, actually a lot of people, former prisoners who have started out, you know, or started up organizations that assist um other former prisoners upon release so you know that those are always positive stories to share but um and yeah as you mentioned um in the last issue um on the issue before the last one um we started sharing transcripts from jailbreak radio and i uh, i hosted an episode of that um in early 2022 and um the uh, producer of that actually encouraged me to share um, the episode I hosted in in the magazine, and and that that would have, have fallen in that category as well because you know um when I went into prison, uh, part of the reason I um uh, committed the crime, which uh, um was because I was really depressed and I felt like I had nothing to lose. Whereas now, like um things are going very well. I, I have a job I really love. Um, I'm, I've been working as an artist and a writer. I'm, I'm doing this PhD. And so, you know, I, I want to share my story because I mean, hopefully that, um, tells other people that, you know, maybe, you know, there's hope for them as well. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely, um, uh, some of it's just like fun art and poetry and stuff. But then, you know, I do like to have some constructive criticism of prison in there and then also share, um, the inspiring stories too. Mm. You mentioned, I guess that in the absence of proper therapy and things like that in prison, that, writing and drawing and things is a an important uh, therapeutic process for people in prison do you uh, see that in the people who are contributing to paper chain yes um something that uh really helps keep me going is that um i get letters um you know every day um i go down to the to the post office and i and i um our po box and i pick up the the mail from people in prison and um it's quite common for me to get um, letters saying something along the lines of, oh, this is incredible. Like, I wish there had been a magazine like this when I came in 10 years ago. Like, you know, um, it's really um, changed my life to, to see my work in print. And um, so, I mean, I, I do get like... Um, some like really great feedback from the magazine it's uh yeah we've never actually had any criticism it's, it's all been just just great feedback from people inside and um yeah so i mean i you know i don't think we're like you know changing the world but i uh, we're definitely changing the world for for some people you know um helping them get through their time and and you know it's like it's hard to explain to anyone who hasn't been in prison how isolating things are like something small like just even just receiving a letter in the mail can really change your entire day. You know, that might be the only nice thing that happens to you all day is that they, the guards slide a letter underneath your door. And so, um, yeah, like, uh, it definitely does make a huge difference to, um, to some people, like, um, yeah, getting them through their time. And, uh, yeah, we, we really need a lot of support like that. Um, especially since the prison doesn't provide any. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I am grateful to the prison system for making us available on the, on the tablets they have. But I mean, at the end of the day, I essentially, I think I'm doing them a massive favor. I'm providing a constructive outlet, uh, and entertainment for prisoners at zero cost to them, you know, essentially, um, yeah, yeah, I think, oh, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing what they should be doing, but, uh, you know, 
it, it is what it is. And I mean, I, I love my job. So I, like I'm personally, I don't mind. <laughs> you said you're doing a PhD on mental health in prisons. And it's obviously there are massive mental health issues in most people that go into prison. And those are generally only exacerbated by the isolation and the anxiety and things like that in prison. Do you want to share some of what your research is and some of the suggestions that you think could make it better? Yeah. So um, when I went in, um, I was uh, quite, quite depressed even before I went in. And then, you know, obviously you, you go in uh, and it doesn't improve your life. So um, I had a mandatory appointment with the prison psychologist and she said something to me that will change, that has changed the rest of my life. And that's why I'm pursuing this PhD. So I told her that, you know, I'd started on a mental health care plan while I was on bail and I was finding it, finding it really beneficial. And I said to her, you know, um, I really think it'd be really beneficial for me to continue that therapy in prison. And uh, she smiled sadly and she said, Damien, everyone in prison would benefit from therapy, but unfortunately they don't give us any funding for that. Our job's just to, um, like uh, assess whether people are suicidal or dangerous to to write reports for corrections. And so that that's the issue. There's there's lots of psychologists working in prisons, but none of them actually uh help people. They're they're employed by the prison service to write uh reports like for parole. Um and eventually my depression got worse and I went to see a mental health nurse and um and I said, "Look, is there anything you can do for me at all?" and um she said, look, the, unfortunately, the only thing, you know, uh, and she was really upset to tell me this. I could tell, like, she was, you know, didn't want to be the bearer of bad news. But, like, yeah, she said, um, the only thing I can do for you is give you the phone number of a, of a, a counselling service to call once you're released. Um, you can't really call a service like that in prison. Um, you can, but, like, our phone calls in New South Wales are limited to six minutes. So you can't unpack a lot of childhood trauma in six minutes, especially when there's a group of guys standing behind you in line waiting to use the phone who can overhear. So, um, and I was very confused about why there was no mental health care in prison. And so, um, shortly before I got out, I wrote a, um, a sternly worded letter to the Minister of Corrections, who was uh, David Elliott at the time. And one of the things I complained about was the fact I couldn't uh, access my mental health care plan in prison. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand this. What, why can't we have this treatment in there? And his re reply to that was extremely terse. Um, he just said, um, the mental health care plan is provided by Medicare. Prisoners do not have access to Medicare. And that was the first time I learned uh, that I'd lost my Medicare access in prison. And that's what the the big issue is. Um, uh, the only Australian citizens who don't have access to Medicare are prisoners. Um, you uh, And so a big portion of my PhD is focusing on trying to make Medicare available in prisons. And I actually had an article about that uh, published quite recently in the Alternative Law Journal, making the strong case for that. So um, that that's the elephant in the room, really. That that's that that's the big issue that needs to be changed before we can get mental health treatment in there. And um, yeah, that's what uh, my PhD has been focusing on so far. Yeah. And just finally, you mentioned that the magazine is funded by Restorative Justice Centre. This is a, a phrase, restorative justice, that some people might be familiar with. Do you want to share with us what that phrase kind of means and what it looks like in practice for a restorative justice centre in New South Wales? Yeah, uh, so um, so we're funded by the Community Restorative Centre. They um, they do provide a lot of uh, treatment uh, for um, people transitioning back into the, the, the community. They also run um, a couple other programs. Um, there's a Jailbreak Radio, which um, you know I, I host an episode of, and they also fund something called Songbirds, which is uh, people going into prison to record music. Um, restorative justice, um, that is something that uh, I definitely think would be a huge step forward. So for people who aren't familiar with that, uh, that's 
uh, uh, way where um, instead of like, you know, um, the current criminal justice system we have is like, you know, if you've been a victim of crime, uh, you're, the only purpose you serve in court is to be a witness for the prosecution. You know, you, you, um, you testify in court or you make a statement and, um, a lot of the times the prosecution don't even update you on the outcome. You have to call them. You know, your only purpose is to act as a witness for the crown. Whereas restorative justice is where you, um, the, you bring the, the victim and, uh, the, you know, the person who's committed the crime. Uh, together in like, like a circle and, uh, you have a lot of, um, you know, other people there and, and you, um, you basically get, get them to, to talk and explain what happened. And, you know, obviously if the, if the person who's committed the crime is willing to do that, you know, there'll be, you know, apologies and stuff. And, um, the overwhelming majority of people who participate in things like these around the world, it, it ends up being better for both the, the victim of crime and also the person who's committed it. And, uh, you know, it, it's a way to aid in healing. And unfortunately, our criminal justice system we have, I um, mean, you know, I'm not saying people don't deserve to have some form of punishment, but I mean, it, it, it doesn't really serve any purpose in the sense that, you know, it doesn't heal trauma for the victim. Um, it doesn't provide any rehabilitation for, for the person who's committed the crime. And, um, yeah, so it's just a, like a downward spiral and it makes everything worse. So, um, restorative justice is, um, Definitely what we should be doing. I know in New South Wales, we experimented with it in the night, in the 90s. It's, uh, why that never really took off. Um, oh, it's probably a political thing. You know, I, I assume the conservatives, um, didn't want to fund it, but, um, so it's a shame it didn't, uh, because, uh, in the places in the world where they've done that, it's definitely had a huge impact. And the ironic thing is, is that, um, lots of cultures around the world, um, used to restore things with, uh, yeah, with just the, their own informal, like, yeah, um, restorative justice, like, you know, the indigenous Australians had to circle sentencing and things. And then Europeans came and they brought this, uh, uh, um, inverted commas, civilized system. We're like, oh, no, no, we, we, uh, we'll, we'll take all care of this formally. And, um, there are all these, like, yeah, indigenous and traditional restorative, um, you know, practices were thrown out and they got re replaced by this elitist garbage, really. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, basically we're, uh, I think there should be a big pushback to going back to restorative justice. But, um, yeah, that's like a lot of things in the criminal justice system. Um, Unfortunately, I don't see it ha seeing it happening anytime soon, but it would definitely make a big impact for for everyone. You know, there, there are no losers in restorative justice. The the, the um, people are less likely to offend, uh, offend, and and victims are more likely to heal. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Well, it doesn't seem to be a big vote winner. Um, trying to make things better for prisoners and better but, for um, criminals. And that's that's the whole issue with the, the, the Medicare in prison. Like we've got all the ed evidence. Um, not a, like it, there are no losers in that. It, it actually it's actually cheaper for taxpayers to um, fund Medicare in prisons in the long term because we know for a fact that people who have mental health treatment in prison are less likely to reoffend. And so it's more it's more effective to taxpayers. But politicians still don't want to touch it because anytime you say you know oh, like, let's improve the rights of people in prison, you know there's the, there's a public backlash and, and you know. Um, so yeah, it's that's that's the kind of thing we've always got to be working against. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. All right, thanks very much, Damien. Um, if people are interested in reading Paper Chained, how can they find it or subscribe to it? Yeah, so um, uh, the website's uh, paperchained.com, um, B-H-A-I-N-E-D.com, and uh, you can read it for free online. You can download the PDF, and there's also, um, if you subscribe to our um, newsletter, we only send newsletters out when a new issue's out. So, yeah, yeah just by the way, issue 11's out, that you, you'll get an email every three months. So, um, yeah, you can read it online for free and subscribe for free online, and we're also on Instagram at paper.chained, yeah. All right, thanks very much, Damien. 
No, thank you. It's been great to be here. And we were talking with Damien Linane, who is the editor of the Paper Chain magazine that goes out to all prisoners in New South Wales and any prisoners are free to subscribe in other states. You can read it, as he said, at paperchained.org um, and you can sign up there as well to get sent each issue as it comes. All the, the writers are prisoners and ex-prisoners generally. And I've got another interview now. We're going to be talking about a similar topic with Jenny Lee Carr. Uh, Jenny Lee works in Aboriginal mental health and has had plenty to do with the prison system through her work. She's also part of the uh, Indigenous Australian, Indigenous Aboriginal Party of Australia um, political party. Let's have a listen to Jenny Lee talking about some of the issues of prison for Aboriginal people, particularly Aboriginal youth who have been the subject recently of law changes here in Queensland. Hi, I'm Jenny Lee Carr from the Indigenous Aboriginal Party of Australia. Uh, before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional landowners of where we all gather today, pay our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. Thank you. And Jenny Lee, we're going to talk to you uh, about a topic, not a very fun and exciting topic, but one that you have some level of involvement in, which is prisons and the incarceration of Aboriginal people and Aboriginal young people. Can you tell us a bit about what your involvement is in this area? Um, well, I've actually... My, my proper background actually is health. Uh, I have spent many years in uh, dealing with mental health issue, which is another issue for the First Nations people. Um, however, mental health um, does sometimes go hand in hand with incarceration, which is a big issue, um, especially for the First Nations people with such, um, you know, transgenerational trauma that we experience. The obviously the you know the position of the Indigenous Aboriginal Party is that um, we just want to clarify here that we. Um, we do understand that there are violent crimes out there that do occur that do need some form of ramification. Um, but we need to, as individuals, as a community, as a society, uh, look at reducing the incarceration rate, especially of our young people. Um, you know, statistics are showing as of December 2022, 56% of the youth that are in detention at the moment um, identifies Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. I um, mean, those figures are just um, are just alarming. Yeah, it's one of those things. I think a lot of people in Australia, their lives are quite removed from incarceration. They don't necessarily know people in prison or have it as part of their lives and you get this media representation and of how much crime there is you know the media love crime and so we get this story but the the rates of incarceration of aboriginal people and aboriginal young people in this country are shocking i guess it's one of the things it suggests is that the current strategies um, which tend to be incarceration as a solution for law-breaking, they don't seem to be working, do they? No, no, that's something I think we all need to um, start to address. Obviously, we've had a correctional system uh, been around for quite some time. We're looking at the numbers are not improving. The Obviously, you know, just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, the rates are going up. Um, closing of the gap is to actually reduce 
the, you know, the gap between uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous children and it's not working. I think as a community we need to sit around, focus on what's not working, what is working and what improvements can be done to deal with this situation. I mean, I, I, I do agree. Um, Anastasia Palaszczuk was saying in one of her interviews there with of many that she has done that the extra penalties are for only the 10% of the people committing these crimes. But as you said, the media play it and play it up that it's a lot worse than what it actually is. Yeah, so let's move on to talking about the Queensland youth justice reforms, which despite... I guess what a lot of the expert advice is about what to do, which generally is not to put people in prison more and for longer, you know, traditionally I guess our our governments and policing have a limited range of options and they they just want to use the one they have more. You know, if there's more crime, more prison is their kind of solution. And so we've got proposed laws about... Um, bail and presumption against bail for young people, um, to criminalise bail breaches, to increase the prison term for car thefts, which I guess is one that is the majority of people are young people, and to, in sentencing, take into account uh, the risk of reoffending, whether people have reoffended or not. And so all these things amount to basically more young people in prison is the argument. And um, yourself and your party that you're a part of have critiqued these reforms. Can you tell us about why you think these are a bad idea? Uh, they're a bad idea, obviously. We're talking with, um, you know, a generation of children here that are actually confused. They don't know where they fit into community. They've been brought up on such a displacement, I should say, um, they, they they experience a lot of racism, discrimination. They feel quite isolated in the community for identifying as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. They've got a lot of, I suppose, you know, your, your trauma that needs to be dealt with. Sometimes they actually do end up on the wrong path due to peer pressure. You have to remember, you know, we're talking about people here with the youth here is 10 years of age up to 17 um, you can't have laws for a 10-year-old that is exactly the same as a 17-year-old. A 10-year-old is actually still developing. They're still working out that they're a child and, you know, what's the next step? Taking a child, you know, from their family, incarcerating them, putting them into isolation for 10 to 14 days when they're actually still only on remand, they haven't even been charged, that just causes more trauma. And that will continue to cause more trauma, continue with the um, transgenerational trauma from time to come. These children need to be nurtured. They need to be shown correct ways. We need to support the young children, support young families with these children, because that is another issue with the um, amount of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children that are in child safety. The figures again since um, I think it was June 2022, we're talking 100, 172 per thousand children are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders taken from their families into care. Where non Indigenous children, it's only 21 per 1,000. I mean, that's just astonishing. We need to start. We have so many committees, so many organisations dealing with specific areas. I think we need to come as a reform 
reform them, put them all into a line where they account and actually work with each other as opposed to opposite each other. Mm. In your experience as somebody who works in mental health for Indigenous people, you would presumably see a lot of the effects of incarceration and also people whose families have been incarcerated as well. It is. It it is. It's a revolving door. It it is actually quite traumatising, obviously, for the individuals and also for the workers too. I mean, we see... We, we, we see them, obviously, yes, they are incarcerated, but we do do therapy with them, we do do support, um, and obviously they're let down they're, when they're re- released from incarceration back out to the community. There, there is a barrier. There is a barrier there. They, they need that outside support um, to continue. A lot of them do want reform. They do want to change. It's that continuing support there are organisations out there, but unfortunately it is government funded and it is only on a year about if the funding is coming through. I think that's another area that we need to look at um, with governments at, at all levels, at state level and federal level. We have, we have this funding, but unfortunately there's not security with this funding. The funding is only there for a very short period of time, whether it be 12 months or a three-year period. You can't achieve a lot of change in a 12-month period to see if that funding is going to still continue. You're still actually only, you know, you haven't even evaluated those first, you know, say a first group of people in a 12-month period. You need to actually follow those groups for a lot longer. I think we need to re-look at how some of the money is allocated to these organisations and funding and have a bit more security you know, I mean, that that's another issue. I mean, we, you know, that they say that, that they want people out there employed, but their employment is not guaranteed. They're only there for on contract. Some of these important issues that we need to deal with need to be permanent positions, not contracted positions. Well, I guess that's one of the big questions um, that a lot of people want to hear is we know there's these issues, but what alternatives are out there that can work and can start to turn around some of these um, communities and some of these issues uh, of incarceration and, of course, of the the things that cause young people to be disengaged from society? Um, disengaged, obviously, I mean, every child mucks up to some extent. I mean, it's not. They've done studies on that. There is a lot of peer pressure. Um, some of, like we said, these youth, uh, you know, are very displaced. They've been removed. They come from obviously socio-economic families that aren't aren't as wealthy. There's more people overpopulation in the house. Their education is not as focused on. Financial issues are a concern. Um, so, so, so when you have a child that's quite isolated, um, not fitting in with their community, but they're fitting in with their peers, the peer pressure can sometimes overrule. They're actually feeling connected. With those peers, they unfortunately can take the wrong path. We need to start, as uh, one of our other members here in our here, Lionel Hannaway, he agrees too that the um, we need to actually have more responsibility um, aligning with the families, stop taking the responsibility off the families for their children and putting them into child safety, put some of that ownership back onto the actual individual, their families, the young person's elders and the traditional landowners of where they are and let them empower them and start teaching them some of their traditions. 
I think these children too are so, like I said, displaced. They're, they've been removed from their, their heritage, from their culture. They're then placed into child safety where they're being told you're Aboriginal, you're this person, they're, they're lost. I think we need to go back to keeping children with their family, engaging them with their support, letting their families teach traditional culture, keeping the families together and working with them all to help reduce the incarceration rate and the crime rate. All right. Thanks, Jenny Lee. Thank you. And we were speaking with Jenny Lee Carr about uh, some of the recent Queensland youth justice reforms, which I think it needs to be pointed out, did not come as an isolated um, incident of policy making. That actually, since the Palaszczuk government has been power, there's been uh, progressive changes to the youth justice legislation. Each one has basically enabled them to lock up kids easier. When we work out, you know, why are so many people in prison? What creates it? That actually there are policies designed, you know, to put people in prison. And when the system is, you know, set up with things that are allowing people to be released, you get politicians changing it to um, make sure they are. And that's something that it goes against the conventional wisdom and certainly against the desires of many of the... Um, marginalised groups who often find themselves and their friends and family in prison. But we'll keep uh, on the paradigm shift. It's an issue that we'll keep doing. And, of course, um, as Damien said, it makes a massive difference, people in prison receiving letters, and you can read things like Paper Chain and, uh, I guess, connect yourself a bit with people who are on the inside. Of course, community radio also around Australia plays a very important role for prisons. It's a, You can't stop radio waves, right? You can't stop them going through prison walls and fortunately you are allowed to have radios inside. And so possibly there's some people listening to this right now who are locked up. Shout out to you if you are. And on a Monday night, 4ZZZ does a locked-in show, which should all tune into every now and then just to remember and get a bit of an insight into that culture community radio around australia as well does it as well to ser as i mentioned lockdown show and doing time on 3cr see you next time